Our Old Testament readings are from Exodus 22, verse 1, found on page 63, and also Leviticus chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 on page 84 in the Bibles that we provide. So starting in Exodus 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Moving over to Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading and sermon text is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and can be found on page 878 in the Bibles that we provide. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Knoxville. Good morning, Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church. And I bring you greetings from two places. Uh, Your friends in Memphis at Second Presbyterian Church and your friends in Birmingham at Covenant Presbyterian Church. You know, you've got friends everywhere. I found that out already. Uh, as I've visited with several of you over the past weeks with your children or your relatives or your friends in either Memphis or Birmingham, we're kind of one big family, if you haven't noticed. And it's good to be with this branch of the family again today. Uh, we've been studying some very interesting encounters of the Lord Jesus Christ with a variety of people. The ones that we've studied up until now have been those who are the broken people. We could say the poor people of the land. Think about the first story that we studied where Jesus delivered the gathering demoniac of his hundreds of demons. A a poor man living out without clothes in in the graveyard. And then we, we looked at 
a paralytic, a poor man who couldn't work, who couldn't take care of himself. It was his four friends who got him to the Lord Jesus. And then we looked how Jesus aggressively crossed the gender line of his own day and showed great mercy toward women, particularly some poor women. Uh, A woman who had a flow of blood and had gone to the doctors and spent her entire estate on it. She was poor now and also unhealthy. And a woman who was at the well, she was the wrong kind of a woman. She was a Samaritan woman with a bad reputation. And Jesus spoke to her and led her to living water. And you've studied the text of the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7 who anointed Jesus' feet with the tears and with her hair. And then the famous story, the non-canonical story in in John chapter 7 of the woman caught in adultery and how Jesus carefully and tenderly loved her. So we have seen Jesus' relationship to the poor. And you can't help but notice in the gospel, if you read it regularly, how the poor loved him. They followed him in great mobs, and he loved them. There seemed to be a special relationship with Jesus and the poor. And to this day, uh, the demands upon Christian people to be sure that there's social justice, there's economic justice and racial justice coming out of the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're to walk in his sandals, we are a people who care about the poor and the marginalized and those who are oppressed. But the question before us today is, what does he think of wealthy sinners? (laughs) And, And who are the wealthy? Well, as I think I've mentioned previously here this month, we're the wealthy. If you live on the poverty line in the United States of America, you're in the top 10% of wage earners in the world. If you make $50,000, you're in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. It's a very poor world in which we live, and we're the wealthy. In fact, we live in the wealthiest nation in the history of humankind. This is where we live. We're comfortable. We're well-fed. You can tell from looking at me. Uh, We Uh, have the privileges of education and so much comfort that it almost overwhelms us. How does Jesus relate to folks like us? This text is wonderfully encouraging to people as Cedar Springs Presbyterian, Covenant Presbyterian, Second Presbyterian, people who in the eyes of the world would be the wealthy, the top 1% of the world. And I want you to notice in the text First of all, how the wealthy relate to Jesus. And secondly, I want us to notice when we get to verse 5 and following, how Jesus relates to the wealthy. It's really encouraging and very important for us to see it. Now, first of all, let's notice how the wealthy relate to Jesus in verses 1 through 4. Why do I say the wealthy? Well, you, you get it in the text. Zacchaeus was, the text says, a rich man. He probably wasn't as rich as you are but he was a rich man in his own day. Furthermore, the text tells us that he was a chief tax collector. Now, we've run into tax collectors before in the gospel accounts. Levi himself, his other name was Matthew, the author of the first gospel in your uh, New Testament. He was a tax collector. But this is the only place in the text where you have a chief tax collector. So this man kind of had, kind of like a pyramid scheme, if you will. He had other tax collectors under him. Now, a tax collector was one who would bid with the government, uh, and the highest bidder would get the job. 
So if I say to the government, the Roman government, I'll raise $10,000 here, then it's my job to go get it out of you. So I'm extorting, I'm cajoling, I'm threatening, I'm throwing people in prison, I'm doing whatever I can to get $12,000 so I can make $2,000 out of it. That's how tax collectors worked. And Zacchaeus had a whole staff of them. And the reason was he lived in Jericho. Now Jericho, you'll remember from the Old Testament, was a cursed city. Because when Joshua came in with the people, they destroyed Jericho and a curse was upon it. It was never to be rebuilt, but it was. So Jesus goes into a cursed city and there he finds the chief tax collector. And it was a wealthy city because it was a trade route from the east. And it was very active economically. So a a chief tax collector would have made a lot of money. Tim Keller says his first rule of Christian business people is this. Rule number one, don't be a schmuck. (laughs) Pretty good rule. Zacchaeus was a schmuck. He took advantage of his own people and extorted taxes out of them in order to fund the oppressive Roman government over the Jews. He was despised. He was shunned. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. And you can almost see him. He was a wee little man, but he had a lot of money. He probably dressed more fabulously than anybody else in the neighborhood. And this is where Jesus went. And what you see in these first four verses is this primary truth, and that is needy, wealthy people desperately need Jesus. Needy, wealthy people desperately need Jesus. Wealthy people are needy. And that's what we see in Zacchaeus' life. Every there, everyone there would have despised him because they thought he lived a comfortable life. He had everything that he wanted. And he was taking, take, raking it off of everybody else's estate. And they would have thought he was fine. But you can see in Zacchaeus' life he wasn't fine. When Jesus came along, the big crowd was with him going down the main street of Jericho. Zacchaeus was a little man. He couldn't see over the crowd. And no one's going to give way to him and let him in. They despised him. So he was on the outer fringes and he couldn't see Jesus. So what does he do? Probably takes a side road, runs way ahead of him. And older men, it was, it was undignified for older men to run. But he ran ahead of him. And he got up into a sycamore tree, anticipating where Jesus would come so that he could see him when he came by. And I think from looking at the story, we can see that this was more than mere curiosity. It was more than merely the desire to say, hey, I saw the celebrity myself. No, there was something else going on in his life. We see it in the rest of the story. And here's what goes on. People who have stuff eventually realize the stuff does not satisfy them. Some who are less mature spiritually or psychologically will go on for a long time before they finally come to that reality. But most people are fairly soon going to realize this is not going to satisfy my soul. There was a book written uh, in the earlier part of this century, just 15 years ago or so, by a man named Tim Kasser, who is a professor of psychology And he wrote a book entitled, The High Price of Materialism. And his basic thesis is this. Those who aspire primarily to material things are tangibly less happy and face more troubles than those who have other values to which they aspire. 
And there have been many studies along this line, and uh, Tim Kasser pulls several, several of them together. And he shows, this is scientifically, empirically, how money makes virtually no difference in the happiness level of Americans or anybody else. Now, there is a level where it does make a difference, and that's the basic fundamental needs. For example, food on the table and a roof over your head. It will make you happier to have food and a roof. But beyond that, the things that we aspire to, the large estates that we would like to create, the studies clearly show there's no difference in happiness level. And as a matter of fact, what the studies show is that your psychological struggles and disorders are going to be greater, probably by a multiple of two. Back pain, anxiety, depression, all of those phenomena go way up when you're making money. I was not too long ago looking at the lifestyle of the U.S. when I was born in 1951. I'm 68, so that you don't have to do the arithmetic. Uh, and I think the household income was somewhere around $3,300 in 1951 dollars. And if you, if you do all the indexing and finally compare the household income in that day to the household income in our day, it's, it's now a multiple of two or three times. So we're in real dollars, constant dollars, making about twice as much in our households, maybe three times as much as we were in 1951. And then I started to think, well, what's the difference in the happiness in the families I knew in 1951 and the ones that I get to know now? And frankly, I, th I think they were a lot happier 68 years ago. And the studies show it. The divorce, divorce rates have tripled the suicide rates have quadrupled. The disorders have just magnified with all of the comfort, education, material possessions that we have acquired over the past 68 years. You would think somebody would take notice. There's a reality here. There's a truth in here. There's something real to be considered. That is, watch out to what you aspire. Tim Kasser goes on to show that once you start making money, what happens is you want to make more. It's not making you happier, but you intuitively just want to make more. So his studies show if you're making $35,000 a year, you would say, if I made 60, I think I'd be happy. If you make 60, the studies show you're not happy until you make 100. If you make 100, you're typically going to say, I don't think I'd really be comfortable until I made 250. Now, that's what the studies show. So there's this, what happens is you, you get more stuff and have more privileges, and your appetite just grows beyond it. It's your appetite, if you're devoted to this, your appetite will always be larger than your reality. It's a sad, toxic story. And down deep underneath, we know something's wrong. Every wealthy person here knows it. You may not have been to church for months, and you've been seeking other things in your life. You know it, and that's the reason you're here, just like Zacchaeus. You know there's something else, and you, you want to search it out. After Tim Kasser wrote his book in 2008, uh, Madeline Levine, who is a, a Californian clinical psychologist, wrote a book called The Price of Privilege. Her study was focused not on the adults who were making all the money. 
Her studies focused on the children and the effect on youth with the, aspir- the materialistic aspirations of American people. And her studies actually are more dramatic. Uh, for example, with teenage girls, you'll find those who are considered in the realm of living a comfortable, educated life or come from families who have comfort in education, uh, 22% of teenage girls suffer from clinical depression who are in that category, three times the national average. So you get comfortable and you have privileges and all of a sudden your psychological problems are skyrocketing. And you can see the same thing with other disorders and even with teenage suicides. The the children who are at risk in our culture right now are children who go to churches like Cedar Springs Presbyterian. They're children of, of privilege. They're the ones who are at the highest risk for drug use, alcohol, and so on. Some years ago in Memphis, we did a little study. We got permission from Memphis University School, which is seventh grade through 12th grade, to study their students who had come from our Presbyterian Day School, pre-K through sixth grade. So we wanted to look at our pre-K through sixth grade graduates and how they were conducting themselves in high school and uh, morally and to look at the dynamics of it. Here's what we discovered with regard to alcohol use, which was a key area of interest for us. We wanted to study the dynamics of kids who were using alcohol, obviously inappropriately because they were not of age. Here's what we discovered. At Presbyterian Day School, they were taught very clearly what they should be doing. They go to Memphis University School, which is a fine school. My own son graduated from there. Uh, We like the school, but when they get into high school, you find a lot more uh, alcohol use, drug use, sexual immorality, and so on. So we studied the alcohol use, and here's what we found. The kids who were abusing alcohol, who were 16 years of age, we wanted to know what their parents thought and what their parents were doing. And what we discovered was their parents weren't doing very much at all. This really made us curious. So we, did, we drilled down a little bit more to find out what the parents were thinking. And here's what we discovered through some scientific polling. The parents had a suspicion that something was going on, but they didn't want to ask the question. They didn't want to have the, congregation, have the conversation because they wanted their kids to be successful. And in order to be successful, you have to be in the right social group. And if they confronted their kids about alcohol, the concern would be that would pull them out of this social group where there's this economic updraft. Sound sick? Just check your belly button. You might find some similar traits. Parents who have comfort and convenience often do not know how really to rear their children in healthy ways. So there's the high price of materialism. There's the price of privilege that involves even our children. Those of us in churches like ours need to be sure that we're aware of these things. But down underneath it all, those of us like myself who have comfort and privilege, we're aware something's desperately wrong. We sang about it a moment ago. There's no other name. There's no other place to go. Sing with me. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. The Lord he wanted to see. Stands the one only. He climbed up in that sycamore tree because people of privilege 
know there's something more. And they too want to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the larger question we begin to study in verse 5. Here's the larger question. We can see that wealthy people know they need something. They finally get frustrated, most of them. They'll try it for a while, and they finally realize something's off. And they go back to the only name. They want to see Jesus. But the big question is, how is Jesus going to relate to them? What's his view of you? And I think what you see in this text is really remarkable. Number one, verse five, he seeks you. Number two, verses six through 10, he saves you. He seeks rich people like us, and he saves them dramatically, profoundly, and joy returns. Now let's look at verse five, first of all, he seeks. Now look what he does in verse five. First of all, he looks up that tree. He looks up into that tree. He notices Zacchaeus. You know, I don't know if you're like me, but when I first started going to church as an unbeliever, every once in a while, maybe once a year or so, I sat in the back, came late, and left early. Jesus noticed me. I didn't think he did, but he did. Doesn't matter where you sit, who you are, you are noticed as much as I am this morning by the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees you. He knows you. He notices you. Secondly, look at verse 5. He speaks to you. In fact, he calls you by name. He knows you far more than you think. I always tell 20-somethings who have graduated from college, I have a lecture I do for them on how to live your 20s. Three big things. You'll have to invite me back. Uh, Three big things. But I, I tell them this. I say, you know, the problem with 20s is they think that nobody notices them. Do you realize that we 68-year-olds are looking for 20-somethings all the time? We're trying to find out, find out who really has character, who really has a work ethic, who really is out there to, do, to serve other people. We're scouting, we're trolling all the time for 20-year-olds. You think you're not noticed? We know who you are. We've got our eyes on you. Well, some of you think that Jesus doesn't know. You're sitting up there in that sycamore tree, and you think you're just observing from the observation tower, and he calls you by name. He's known you were there the whole time. He had his eye on you. So notice that Jesus notices him, and notice that he speaks to him. Now, thirdly, look at verse 5 again. See what he says. Zacchaeus, you come down out of that tree. (laughs) He invites him. Jesus invites Zacchaeus. He calls him to come to him. And he's doing the same thing with you today. If you're here in this room, this text is calling you. The Lord's calling you. He's inviting you, not just to sit up there and observe things and see what Christians do and see who Jesus is and kind of get a feel for what Christianity is. No, come on down. Come on down to the front. Get an embrace from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's bidding you to do today. He's inviting you. I'm so grateful, grateful that he does. And Christians are to be this way too. We're to be inviting people. Yes, to schmucks like Zacchaeus. Nobody puts us off because we know where we came from. So we carry the message of Jesus that's always inviting. You know, we all, all all of us old folks especially, miss Dr. Billy Graham. It's kind of like a whole generation passed when he died. And I miss him. And he's been a huge influence in my life. And uh, shortly after he died, 
I guess I was scrolling through some videos and I came across one in 1969 when Dr. Graham would have been, you know, roughly 50 years old. And he agreed to do an interview with none other than Woody Allen. Uh, in a, Woody Allen, you wouldn't remember, in 1969 had an interview show. And he invited Dr. Graham, and Dr. Graham happily accepted the invitation. So it was a nice little funny, humorous exchange. But uh, then they took audience questions, and one of the persons in the audience said to Dr. Graham, Sir, have, have you ever been to a Woody Allen movie? And Dr. Graham said, uh, no, I haven't, but I, I think I might want to do that. And, and then Woody spoke up. And by the way, Woody, when he spoke of religion, he said, not in this interview, but other, in another place, he said, I'm, I can't decide if I'm an atheist or an agnostic. I can't decide which religion I don't believe in. That's how Woody described himself. Anyway, so Woody Allen spoke up and said, well, Dr. he said, Dr. Graham, if you'll uh, come to one of my movies, I'll go to one of your religious gatherings. So Billy took his big hand and he said, that's a deal. <laughs> and I also remember an occasion when I was, for some reason, in the Asheville, North Carolina airport. I was on my way to Boston, back to my home where I lived. And uh, I know in, in those days, 40 years ago, there was no security. You know, you remember those days you could go right from the lobby and walk right out to your plane? You know, I miss those days. I was in the lobby getting ready to walk out to my plane to the gate, which is no big deal. But I noticed a crowd coming in from a plane that had just arrived. And instead of coming at me with their faces toward me, they were backing up toward me. So obviously, they had their eyes on somebody else. Well, it was Dr. Graham. The pictures were flashing and people were shouting questions. And he had a guest with him. It was none other than Muhammad Ali. Here's Dr. Graham, in, not just in public, but in private, all the time, seeking to invite the rich, just as well as the poor. We make no difference, and Jesus didn't either. So he, he seeks by inviting. And then notice, continue to look at verse 5. He, he not only notices and speaks to him by name and invites him, but he pursues him. Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. <laughs> I think this is the only text in the Bible where Jesus invites himself to dinner. But he does because he's pursuing you. He's pursuing Zacchaeus. He's seeking him. And he does. And you know what? I had the same experience. Um, when I was living in Boston, I was a salesman for a large company. And I had grown up in church, but it just didn't take. And I had my reasons not to go to church. I won't waste your time. But every once in a while, I would trip into church, maybe once a year. And I, as I said, I sat in the back. I came late and left early. Came during the first hymn, left during the last hymn, because I didn't want to talk to you folks. Uh, you know, I just wanted to kind of get the ambiance and hear a message, and I wanted to leave with no interruption. My wife is in, uh, introverted, and so uh, and I'm slightly extroverted. So she said to me as we were leaving early, she said, sweetie, I'll just go on out to the car. Do you mind picking up Drew, our oldest and at that time only child, in the nursery? And I said, sure, sweetie, go on. So I went down to the nursery. And in 1976, I, I still remember it, there was a Dutch door there. The bottom half was closed, top half was open, you know. So, and there was a man keeping the nursery. That was unusual in 1976. He was an elder. And the reason 
his name is easy to remember. His name was Fred, but his name was, he had a name tag right here, Fred Elder. That was his name, Fred Elder. <laughs> so Fred was keeping the nursery. Now, what I didn't know, I was a salesman for my company. I didn't know that Fred was a salesman for his company. Okay, it's just background. So I get to the door, I say, Fred, thank you so much for keeping Drew in the nursery this morning. We really appreciate it. He's the one right over there, I think, in the corner. If you hand him over, we'll be on our way. Thanks a ton. And Fred said, did you hear that we have a coffee hour this morning? I said, yeah, Fred, uh, I, heard, I heard about that upstairs, but I said, uh, here's the problem. Uh, Drew really has to have lunch right away, and it's lunchtime, so I better take him home and feed him lunch. Fred said, I'd be glad to feed him. Thank you, Fred. Uh, appreciate that. I said, um, the other thing is that after he eats, he gets real cranky. You got to put him down, uh, you know, for his nap, and He'll cry before he falls asleep. I see him wake up all these other good babies in here. And Fred said, you see my 16-year-old daughter back here and the door she's standing next to? She can take Drew right through that door, close it, and there's a, there's a rocking chair on the other side and a crib, and she loves to do that with the crying babies. I said, thank you, Fred. Uh, <laughs> it's very, very kind of you. I said, I, I didn't want to mention this, but after he eats and then you put him down, I said, Fred, the, the, the smell alone is just terrible. I wouldn't, I said, I wouldn't do this to my, to, to my worst enemy. And he said, I'll change his diapers. I'm thinking in my mind, my child is being held hostage in this Presbyterian church. <laughs> so I'm completely flummoxed by this other salesman that I didn't know was a salesman. I said, so Fred, where's the coffee hour? And he said, well, just uh, down the hall, 20 feet, take half, half a flight of steps, and you'll be right there. So I'm kind of dazed going down the hall. Here comes my wife, who now is impatiently trying to find out where in the world I am. She thought I got into some conversation with my extroverted nature. And she says, where's Drew? And I said, honey, we are going to a coffee hour. Hang on. <laughs> so I get in that coffee hour, and then here comes Lloyd. And Lloyd is from Nova Scotia, has a little Scottish accent. He says, well, you want coffee or tea? What kind of tea? And all this, that's fine. So then Lloyd says, have you met Bill? And I told you about Bill when I was here last time. That's John's brother, uh, John Wood's brother. Bill uh, teaches Sunday school. I said, well, I don't know Bill. And he said, why don't you come to his Sunday school class? There's an imitation, a pushy imitation. And I'm a Southern gentleman at least. And so I didn't know how to say no. And so I agreed to come to Sunday school. So I'm after Sunday school. And Bill's wife, Judy, comes up. You're going to our house today. I said, no, I'm not. I'm going to my house. No, you're going to my house. And so I end up going to their house. I said, <laughs> And then another elder has an evangelism group. I'm not even a Christian yet, and he invites me to join the evangelism group and twist my arm to go to the evangelism group. So I get in the evangelism group, and uh, the first assignment, as you know, is to write out your personal testimony. You can imagine that. So my wife remembers this. I don't, but I'm sitting at our little dining room table. She's five feet away on the other side of the wall in the kitchen. She hears a pencil flying around with some bad words. She comes in the room, says, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, I'm supposed to write my testimony, but I don't have one. And she said, well, you better get one. <laughs> That's how I became a Christian. <laughs> seriously, seriously. And I don't recommend it. Do you see how Jesus is seeking you? And you may, you may say, boy, those people were pushy. Well, they're New Englanders. Give them some slack. But how grateful I am 
that they pursued me, they sought me in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why I'm here today. Then notice lastly, verses 6 through 10, Jesus saves wealthy sinners. He seeks them, and he saves them, and you can tell because of three things. Verse 6, notice Zacchaeus comes down out of that tree and joyfully receives the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he has the joy. He's getting ready to lose almost all of his money. And he's got the joy. Why? He's got him. He knows his sins are forgiven. He knows he's reconciled to this Messiah. He knows that he's brought into union with him and has a relationship with him. And Jesus is empowering him and loving him and including him. And he'd rather have that than all the diamonds in South Africa. He found joy. And when you're saved, you will find that you joyfully receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't sadly receive him. You joyfully receive him. Then secondly, look at verses 7 and 8. Here the crowds are snickering and murmuring. And they're saying, some Messiah that is. He hangs out with schmucks. His friends are lousy, crooked, rich people. And Zacchaeus probably hears it. And probably down inside is saying, yeah, I know, this is what's so amazing. And he immediately stands up and renounces publicly his own sinful conduct. Why? Everybody's saying the church is full of hypocrites like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is going to make this clear. I'm not a hypocrite. I've met the Messiah. I'm changing my life, and I will not be the same Zacchaeus you used to know. I'm giving half of my possessions. I'm an avaricious, selfish man. I'm giving half of my possessions to the poor, and with those I've defrauded, I'm not just going to do what Leviticus said, give it back plus 20% interest. I'm going to do what Moses said for sheep stealers in Exodus. I'm going to give back four times. I want to make it really clear. This man is not promoting unrighteousness by forgiving rich, sinful, wealthy people. He changes us. What he touches doesn't pollute him. It transforms us. That was Zacchaeus' strategy. And he immediately showed that he desired Jesus more than all of his possessions. And he had joy. Now, thirdly, look at verses 9 and 10. And you'll see the third element of this salvation. Not only does he joyfully receive Jesus and publicly renounce his wicked lifestyle, but here he is joined to the ancient people of God. When Jesus looks at him and his behavior, he recognizes it right away. This is exactly what Abraham did. He left his father and his possessions and his comfortable life and went to a land he didn't know about. And here's another man who's leaving his possessions joyfully because he has God. And he's going to move forward not knowing what the future brings. He's a son of Abraham, he says. He belongs to God's people. And then the summarizing verse, not only of this text, but probably all of Luke's gospel and maybe the entire Bible, when Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He's come for you. Will you take him? Come down out of that sycamore tree, Zacchaeus. Come to the table. All of you who 
want to know him deeply and rejoice as you receive him again into your hearts and renounce all the ways that are contrary to his kingdom and now number yourself among the ancient people of God. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, but he became a very happy man that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though the rich young ruler walked away and you said that, it, that it's more likely for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved, and yet here you are, you're saving, you're saving a wicked, wealthy man. And we are encouraged because we have much, but we need you. We come to you and we come to your table today because we need you. And we're so grateful that you want us. We love you. And again today, give ourselves to you. Blessed Jesus. Amen.